Žibelovky. Father God, we glorify your name here this morning. God, we just thank you that we're able to come together and worship you. God, we just thank you for the ease and just how simple it is for us to do this, Father. That we can do this without fear. We praise you for this. God, we also just praise you for all you've done and for what you're doing and what you're going to do in our lives and in the life of this congregation. We just praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been an exciting week here at Halifax Christian Church. Um, last Friday, Good Friday, and Easter, for our services, we saw record numbers at these services. Um, it was really great times of worship where we got into God's Word. But it's, it's amazing because by the grace of God, we are growing here. Along with growth, there's, there's challenges that come with this. So we had another exciting time this week uh, where members of our leadership team and other members of the congregation were able to meet uh, with Mike Arnold, who's just a specialist in in church growth, church health, and he's just able to give us some, some points as we look towards the future and look at what God is going to do here. So we're very excited. We praise God for all of this. Now I want to start off by asking you a question. Um, have you ever been told information or news that you found it so hard to believe that you, you couldn't believe it unless there was hard evidence? Now I'll give you an example of what I'm thinking. My wife woke me up a few years ago, really early in the morning, like 5.15, 5.30, which is super early for me, some of you best like sleeping in. Um, and she asks, or she tells me, James, I think I'm pregnant. And that's a scary way to wake up. Um, and, and, and so I sat up, I stared straight ahead. She said, I didn't really say anything uh, for quite a few minutes. And in my head, I'm going through, am I still asleep? Is, is this a dream? Did, did she just say what I think she said? And so when I kind of regained consciousness from this stupor, I like got in the car, I floored it to shoppers because they're 24-7, and I bought multiple pregnancy tests because I wanted to go home and be absolutely sure whether or not we were pregnant. And about eight months later, uh, we were blessed with Seth. But that's how we are as human beings. We need proof. Uh, we're skeptical of something unless we can like touch it, see it, feel it. Uh, our our culture is one that says you need empirical evidence to back up something that claims to be true. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is definitely no exception to this. Christians say that Jesus uh, died and he rose again. And for many people, they wrestle with this. Can a man die and come back to life? Can that happen? And we can, we can understand that even some people here today, as we gather to worship, might wrestle with this question, can the dead come back to life? Now, we're going to be in Luke 24 today, if you have your Bible here, and we're going to be starting at verse 13. Um, and we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from a different uh, angle than we did last week. So what's happened up to this point is uh, some of the women followers in Jesus' group have gone to his grave after he has been crucified and died, which took place on Friday. And they go to his grave on Sunday morning, and they find the stone is rolled back, and an angel appears to them, and he says, he's alive, he's not here. And so they go and tell the apostles, and Peter and John, they run down to the grave, and they too find that the grave is empty, and that the burial clothes are, are there. They're just folded. So they have an empty tomb, 
But Jesus is nowhere to be seen. Now, what would you think in a situation like this? Uh, you bury your friend, and then you go back to his tomb, and it's, it's empty. People would say, well, maybe, maybe they just went to the wrong tomb. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe somebody came and stole the body of Jesus. Um, now, we have to look at this. People would say, well, people back then, they believed things that we wouldn't believe today. They'd actually believe somebody could die and rise again. But you know what? That, that's not true. It was probably even more skeptical back then. Because today we have things like defibrillators. We have modern medicine techniques where people can actually be dead and be brought back to life. So death was the end for them. People coming back to life wasn't the norm. It's not the norm today. I can't call into work dead on a Friday, show up on Monday and say, I, I, I'm feeling better. It, it just doesn't happen that way. It's also really unlikely that the women and, and Peter and John have all visited the wrong grave. This is Mary's son. This is John's best friend. This is the teacher that Peter is highly devoted to. They're not going to make a mistake of visiting the wrong grave. Yet we find they're not convinced, really, that Jesus is alive. They need evidence. They need proof. And so we're going to pick up today in Luke 24, starting at verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have taken place here in the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. So I want us to notice a few things here. Verse 17, the disciples are sad. They don't sound too hopeful about the overall situation. Verse 18, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus is big news in Jerusalem. Everybody knows what's taking place. And verses 23 and 24 these, these two disciples don't sound too convinced. They're skeptical of the women's story that Jesus is actually alive. Now, we can kind of uh, understand what's going through their heads. I think back to December 30th, 2006. That was the day that Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi dictator, um, he was hung. He was put to death. And we have no trouble believing that he died. There's convincing evidence. People die every day. So we believe that. But imagine his, his coffin was dug up, and they find that it's empty. What are, you, what are you going to think? Are you going to think, well, he's been raised back to life? 
Are you going to think that, well, maybe he was never put into that coffin at all? But thinking there was a resurrection would be one of the last things that's going to go through your mind. So we can understand why the disciples are wrestling with this. Now remember, Jesus is posing as like this mysterious stranger, and he responds to them in verse 25. He says, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And so we see a warning here in verse 25 that Jesus expects us to believe what we find in Scripture as truth. He expects that. But then Jesus also proceeds to give them like a doctorate in biblical studies in a seven-mile walk. Verse 27, listen to this. Then Jesus took them through all the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And we hear that this has taken place, this conversation takes place. It's like, why, why did you get these words, Luke? Because could you imagine hearing Jesus go from Genesis to Malachi, the entire Old Testament, and saying, that prophecy, Jesus fulfills it here, here, and here's how. That would be amazing to hear all of this. But then let's continue, starting at verse 28. By this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on. But they begged him, they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were back on their way to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven disciples and the others who gathered with them, who said, The Lord has really risen. He's appeared to Peter. Now Jesus is such a good teacher that these two disciples beg him to come back to their home and stay in the night. It's kind of odd. But as they're sitting down to eat supper, Jesus does something that sounds really familiar to us. He takes the bread and he breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples. And at that moment, it says their eyes are opened. They recognize who they've been walking with. They've been walking with the one they've been talking about the entire afternoon. Now, as soon as they recognize him, Jesus vanishes, and while he's God, he's able to do those things. But you can imagine the two disciples are kind of sitting there, uh, a little stunned, going like, did that, did that really just happened? Did you just see Jesus too? And they, they confirm this, and they're so excited that they get back on the road and they start heading for Jerusalem, and they probably make that trip in record time. But they get back there, and they learn that Jesus has also appeared to Peter as well. Now, have you ever heard uh, somebody who's claimed to have been abducted by aliens? And they say they did tests on me, and then they returned me back to Earth. And when we hear these things, we're like, okay, crazy person, go away. Um, this is what Christians probably sound like to a lot of people. Jesus died and was resurrected. That sounds kind of crazy. We've we, we just got to say it is not the norm. We can understand why 
people struggle with this. And Jesus himself acknowledges this. He says, you're going to need childlike faith to believe some of these things. Now, skeptics and those critical of the Christian faith, they say that Jesus did not die and rise again because it's impossible. However, we have strong evidence that a man named Jesus, as we find in Scripture, lived on earth. It's been proven. There's also proof that Jesus was crucified. We find it in the Scriptures. We find it in other books outside of the Scriptures. You ask modern scholars, was Jesus crucified? They say there is very, very strong evidence that Jesus was crucified. In Rome, there's this uh, carving on a wall from the 3rd century. It's got the inscription, Alexemenos worships his God. And, and it's basically, they're making fun of a Roman soldier for worshiping a man who is known to be crucified. History supports the crucifixion of Jesus. There's also strong evidence that after Jesus' crucifixion, he appeared to many people. Paul records this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. He says, Jesus was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So what Paul is saying is that 500, 500 plus people have seen Jesus. 500 at the same time. Most of these people are still alive when Paul's writing this. And he's basically saying, if you don't take my word for it that Jesus was alive after he was crucified, that he died and rose again, go ask 499 other people who are still alive, and they'll tell you what they saw. And if Paul's not absolutely convinced of this, he's putting his own reputation and that of the church on the line. Now, people would, we, can, we can say that Jesus lived, we see clearly that he lived, we see clearly that Jesus was crucified, and we see clearly that Jesus appeared to people after his crucifixion, after he was on the cross. So kind of the thought is, well, checkmate, Jesus died and rose again. But the skeptics aren't convinced. They say, that doesn't prove that Jesus died and rose again. They say, we know Jesus lived. We know Jesus was crucified, and we know that he appeared to people at the cross. Their, their theory, in many ways, is that Jesus didn't die on the cross. That being in so much pain, he passed out. He was mistaken for dead, he was taken off the cross, and put into the grave. Now, let's give them some credit. Uh, it's creative. Uh, but another thing, people have been known to be buried alive. Um, even up into the 19th, or, yeah, 19th century, this was a very common fear. Because they would dig up coffins and they would find scratch marks on the inside as people had been mistaken for dead when they were unconscious or in deep sleep. And they'd wake up in the coffin and try and claw their way out. They actually offered something called the safety coffin in the 19th century, which had a rope tied around your wrist and running through the ground to a bell outside. So like, if, if you died and woke up or, or you were buried and you woke up, it would ring, they'd come, dig you up, and you'd live happily ever after until your next funeral. But, 
But this, this is a real fear. We see that people who've been in, in buildings that have collapsed during earthquakes have actually survived for hours and remarkably days. They've emerged alive from the rubble. So skeptics would say that you don't have to and you shouldn't believe that Jesus died and rose again. There's nothing supernatural, there's no, nothing miraculous about Jesus' post-crucifixion appearances. They're saying the Romans and the disciples simply mistook Jesus for being dead. But in actuality, he was unconscious. And 40 to 48 hours later, he walks out of the grave and appears to people. But in our text, we see that the Sunday morning of the resurrection, Jesus meets up with two disciples and walks seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Seven miles, 11.1 kilometers. That's like walking from uh, this church building down to the Seaport Farmer's Market or, or uh, Pier 21. It's quite a distance to walk. But Jesus has also gone through many sleepless nights before this, worrying and, and praying about what he was about to go through. Jesus has been arrested. He's been dragged around town for false trials in front of many different people. He's been beaten. He's had his beard ripped out. He's been whipped to the point where people probably would not recognize him. Jesus was then forced to carry a 100-pound rough beam from the place of his trial to where he was crucified. And they stretched him out over the cross, and they nailed him to the cross, driving the spikes through this wrist, this wrist, and then through the arches of both his feet. Once he was nailed to the cross, they hoisted him up, and that cross dropped into the ground, and Jesus' body was suspended on those nails. And for six hours, the weight of Jesus' body was bearing down on a spike that had been driven through the arches of his feet. Now the next day was a Sabbath, and they wanted to make sure those bodies came down off the cross. So wanting to verify that Jesus was dead, the Romans took a spear, they drove it into his side, and pulled it back out, and blood and water ran out of Jesus' side down the cross to the ground. He was pulled off the cross and put in the grave on Friday. So after all of this, the skeptics of the resurrection, they say that Jesus wakes up in the tomb 40 to 48 hours later, and he, he, he takes off the burial clothes, he rolls back that tombstone, he walks out of the grave and meets up with two disciples for a seven-mile jog to Emmaus. Have you ever broken a toe? Have you ever, like, sprained an ankle? And you try and walk to the bathroom from the living room? You can't do it without looking like one leg is, like, twice the length of the other. It's too painful. Jesus has had a nail driven through both of his feet, through the arches of both his feet. And now he's hiking seven miles teaching scripture. If Jesus had simply woken up after, after having passed out from the pain, wouldn't you want to ask him, I mean, how'd you do an 11.1 kilometer hike? Is Jesus going to say, well, the first two and a half miles, um, they were really tough, but then I just said, suck it up, let's walk it off, and mile three was fine. I really hit my stride there. If Jesus simply woke up, wouldn't they notice there's something different about this bloody and beaten up guy that they're walking along with? For all the crazy things that Christians believe, for all the things that we find in Scripture that we take on faith, and people look at you and they say, I can't believe you actually believe that. 
To believe that Jesus has simply passed out from the pain, that he never died, that there's nothing miraculous, there's nothing supernatural or powerful in this is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. When you know what Jesus has gone through in the torture, in the crucifixion, to simply say that he's ignored the pain, to go pay some visits to people after being crucified, is one of the most foolish things you can believe. To believe that there's no power of God involved in this would take just as much faith as it does to believe that Jesus died and rose again. When I first saw that I was speaking on this text uh, the week after Egypt, or Egypt, Easter, I, I was just like, what am I going to say? Like, it's, it's no new news. Jesus died, but he's alive, um, just in case you missed it last week, and then we'd pray. It would be like a 15-second sermon. Some of you would like that. Um, but, but as I was reading this, I was thinking about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, and then it, the writer, sorry, 2.17, the writer of it says, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. I love this scripture because it says Jesus gets it. He's lived on this earth. He understands temptation. He understands struggling with sin. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Jesus understands pain. He's endured pain. Jesus has lost people he's loved. He's, he's seen people die from sickness. Jesus has been betrayed by friends. He's been abused. He's been bullied. He's been mocked. Jesus knows what it's like to look at death and say, that's going to happen to me. He knows what it's like to die. And when we look at this, we understand verse 24, 6 of Luke. Or chapter 24, verse 26, much better. Jesus says, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things? before entering his glory. And suffering followed by glory is a theme we see repeated again and again in Scripture, where God brings good out of the hard times, out of suffering. Uh, Joseph was the, was the great-grandson of Abraham, the man God had made a promise to that he would make given many descendants. They would be God's people. And so Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he's taken to Egypt, where he's a slave. But through God's power, he is, he's brought to the second in command over all Egypt. And then a famine strikes, and Joseph's brothers, who had sold him into slavery, come looking for help. But Joseph is able to give them help. He's able to preserve God's promise to the people in Egypt, to provide food and shelter. God brings good things out of that suffering. Now the Israelites they increase in number in Egypt and, and they're also subject to slavery by the Egyptians. And God hears the groaning of his people. He sees their suffering and he brings Moses who leads his people out of Egypt 
towards the promised land that was promised to Abraham. And through men like Joshua and through, through much time, they eventually have the promised land. And under King David and under King, under King Solomon, they rise to be one of the most powerful nations in the area. There was glory, there was good times following the suffering. But God's people rebel. They forget God's ways, what he's asked them to do. And they're taken into captivity by the Babylonians and later held captive by the Persians. But men like Nehemiah, men like Ezra, God uses them to bring glory after the suffering, after the hard times. We see this repeated. Glory follows suffering. And we understand suffering, don't we? We get that. Hatred, jealousy, Pride, lust, anger, bitterness, sickness, death. These are words we hear every day. You, you turn on the news at night, and we're bombarded by all of these things. And these things come against us. And because of these things, we often feel despised. We feel rejected. We feel hated. We feel broken, useless, abused. And pretty much like we're, we're dead many of the times. And this leads people to some pretty scary places. It leads people to make some pretty sad decisions. But this text shows that God is not limited or intimidated by these things. We see that Jesus, Jesus was beaten, he was tortured, and he was killed, and then placed in the grave dead. His body was broken. But then we see the disciples are, are out of hope. There's, the situation looks hopeless. But 48 hours later, the tomb is empty, and Jesus is walking to Emmaus with two disciples. Because God has the power to fix what is broken and to bring hope to the hopeless. John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. Down in verse 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. A few weeks ago, I got to go to Jesus to the Nations, and I heard a man named Simon Gibo speak. And Simon was wrapping up his talk, and he was talking about his work in uh, Burundi, Africa. And he was saying that uh, the situation there is pretty rough, but he was saying that somebody was going to use the latrine, which is their washroom. It's, it's an outhouse. It's a hole dug in the ground with a wooden box over top of it where human beings go to do the business. And he said, as this person was going to use the washroom, uh, they saw a movement down in the hole, in the latrine. And they looked closer, and they saw that this was a baby. There was a baby in the human waste and in the filth. That person got down into the filth, and they got that baby. They brought her out, they cleaned her up, and she was adopted by a family. And she was given the name Grace. She was given the name Grace because he said it's a beautiful picture of what God does for us through the gospel. That we were broken, that we were 
dead because of our sin. We were covered in filth, and the situation looked hopeless. But Jesus, seeing our situation, he entered into his creation. He entered into the filth, and he suffered, and he died a death he didn't deserve to die. But gloriously, he rose again three days later by the power of God. And that same power is the power that's able to forgive us our sins. It's that power that adopts us as God's children. And through that same power, we will be resurrected. And when Christ returns, we will go spend eternity with God, with the one who loves us. The message of the gospel is good news for everyone because glory follows the suffering. It's good news for everyone. My prayer is that we as a, as a congregation, that we can claim Romans 1.16 courageously. And my challenge for you is to memorize this verse this week and live this verse out. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father God, God, I ask for forgiveness for the times where I've been ashamed. God, the times where I've had an opportunity to share your word. God, the times where I've had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel that I did. God, I, I pray that for each person here. God, I pray that you forgive us when we've been ashamed. But God, we pray that you would make us bold, that you would make us courageous, that we would see that there is a message of hope here. God, that we would proclaim this message to people because it brings salvation to everyone. It's too important to be ashamed of them. Father, we pray that when people come against us, when they argue with us, God, we pray that you give us the wisdom through your spirit to defend the cross. God, to show that even though it seems like foolishness to us, the power of God was there. God, our prayer is not that we would be skeptic, that we would win the argument, but God, our prayer is that those who are hostile to you, God, that they would come to faith in your Son. Father, that they would call your Son more than Savior. God, we thank you for your Son who went through the filth and died that he didn't deserve for us. Friends, in Jesus' name.
24, where it says Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. And at that point, their eyes are open. They recognize him. Because it, it just for me, it just is a reminder of what we do each week, each week here, where we take communion. Where when we take the bread and we, and we drink the cup, our, our eyes are open. We remember who Christ is. We recognize what he has done for us. That he went to the cross. That he bore our sin and shame. And he died on our behalf. But the story doesn't end there. Three days later, he rose again. And we share in that promise. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, please hold on to the bread and the cup as they're passed. We're going to pray and take those together in celebration. Sometimes when you do something week after week after week, it just can become routine. But God, I just pray that when we celebrate this, we're reminded and we recognize who you are. That you took on flesh, you went through your creation, and you redeemed those who made a mess of it. And Father, that is incredible love. Jesus took the bread and broke and said, This represents my body, which is broken in the emergency. Took the cup. He said, This is the cup of the new covenant. This cup represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. Another way we get to worship God here each week is by giving back to Him. It's not something that we do out of obligation, but it's, a, it's an act of worship. It's an act of praise. Here you here today. We're so glad that you're here. And there's a connection card that came in the bulletin. And uh, you can fill out, if you'd like to take the next step, you can feel free to fill out this card. You can make a prayer request on it if you like, and a box of it.